You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Matthew 5, 38 through 48. We're coming this morning in our series in the Sermon on the Mount, coming into some of Jesus' most well-known teaching on love. Not just that, but some of the most well-known teaching on love in really all of, of ancient literature. So whether you're coming in and you're a Christian and you, you know, you know, you've been reading the Bible all your life or you're coming in and you don't know where you stand with God and maybe you've never even opened a Bible, you have heard some of these words that Melissa read for us that we're going to be in. You've heard, turn the other cheek. You have heard, love your enemy. Um, what I want to do is make sure that we have that oriented where it is in the sermon. Jesus talks about love the way he does and it belongs to a context. It belongs to a section of the sermon that we've been in for several weeks now. If you remember with me, that starts back in verse 17 where he says, I've not come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've come to fulfill. And then he, he invites us to walking and becoming the kinds of people who are deeply righteous people, who have a, a, a whole person behavior that accords with God's nature and will and coming kingdom. It's a deep righteousness where we're becoming deep people. And that's how the section begins. It ends with that phrase that Melissa read for us, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That word perfect has some baggage for us in English. What it means originally, as Jesus meant it, is be complete, be whole as your heavenly Father is whole. So those are the bookends. He's going to, if you're following Jesus, he's covered all your sin. He invites you into a relationship of love, and that's going to mean changing you to become a deeply righteous person. And then it ends with the reason you want to become deeply righteous, the reason we become complete is because our Father in heaven is complete. Right before his punchline, verse 48, right before he ends that section, he says, the mark, how you're going to know the thing, the sign that we are becoming like Jesus is that we love people, that we become people of love. So he, he crescendos his argument by saying, like, if you were to ask, how do I know if it's working? We've been at this for seven weeks or something now. How do I know if I'm becoming deeply righteous? How do I know if uh, change is happening at the level of the heart? How do I know I'm becoming a person of love? That's how. According to Jesus, that's the sign that it's taken root. Anyone surprised to hear that? Anyone surprised to hear that Christians should love people? That's not shocking. That's not new information. In fact, at Citizens Church, our mission statement includes that language. Citizens of heaven, enjoy God, love people, and make disciples. No one's going to raise their eyebrows at love people. In fact, if it said something less than that, that would be weird, right? Citizens of heaven, enjoy God, tolerate people and make disciples, right? No, we, we know. This is a church. We're Christians. We're to love people. I know that. You know that. Okay. There is something Jesus does every single time he talks about love. Every single time he's talking to his disciples about what love looks like for those who follow him, he does this one thing every single time, whether it's here in Matthew 5, whether it's Luke 10 with the Good Samaritan, whether it's John 13 washing a feet, every time he teaches on love, he does so in a way that confronts our low standards of love. Every time. Every time he teaches on love, he does so in a way that's going to identify, that's going to help us see that we have a narrower view of what loving people looks like than what God does. And Jesus teaches in a way that wants to broaden that view. Here's what he knows. Our tendency is to only love people who we believe we're supposed to love. And then we define who we're supposed to love in as narrow as terms possible. 
So I say Christians are to love people, and we all nod. Yes, Christians are people of love. But how we um, maybe walk away from that or how we maybe understand that is, so I love my wife, and I love my kids, and I love people who love me, and I love people who think like me, and then everyone else I ignore or everyone else I tolerate, and then there's even some people that I hate. And Jesus knows that about us, and so every time he teaches, he doesn't start, he goes after those limits. It's like this, my seven-year-old who is one of my favorite people in the world. She loves animals, and her favorite animal is is a dog. That's just her favorite animal on the planet. And she has this dream. Her her life goal right now is to one day own 12 dogs, all different breeds, and she talks about it all the time. We will at least have the conversation once a day, if not multiple times a day, of the different breeds of dogs that she wants, all 12. I think it might be like her design. Anyway, so she wants 12 dogs, all different breeds. She's named all of those, uh, all of those dogs, and she wants to tell me about them. And, and so we go on a walk the other day, and we have our dog with us. Our family has one dog. He's a golden doodle, about 70-pound golden doodle named Rowdy, and um, he's great. To be clear, he is the least important living thing in our home, just to get that out there, but he's great. We love him. Addie, my daughter, she especially loves him. She spends a ton of time with him. And then when we go on walks, she always wants to be the one holding the leash, at least for the first, you know, mile or so of the walk, because he is not great on walks. He doesn't listen. He pulls at the leash. Uh, He's 70 pounds, and so it's a lot of work. So usually what that means is we go on this walk, and Adeline is either trying to drag him or he is, is, is dragging her. So the other day, we go on a walk, and we're having the conversation she loves to have about her dogs. And she's dreaming about her 12 dogs. And she says, one is going to be a golden retriever named Scout, and another one's going to be a Dalmatian named Pongo, and I'll teach him to sit and roll over. And then while she's saying all that, Rowdy sits down and refuses to move. And so she's tugging on the leash and still having the conversation. And then so she pulls on it, and then she says, you know, Dad, another one of my dogs is going to be a small dog, and I know, Dad, that you say that small dogs aren't real dogs, <laughs> which, just to be honest, I do say that, and I'm sorry if that offends you, but I just have, I have principles that I live by in my life, so uh, she'll, she'll say, I, I, I want to at least have one small dog, and I'll name him Tiny, and then she pulls on the leash, and, and Rowdy doesn't move, and then she keeps talking, and she says, you know, one will be a German shepherd, and I'll teach him how to rescue people, and then she pulls on the leash again, and finally, he's just laid down on the sidewalk, and she gets so frustrated, she gets in his face, and she goes, Rowdy, you're the worst dog, <laughs> and then she hands me the leash, and she says, and I'll also have a yellow lab, and I'm going to name him Buddy, and then we just keep walking, and I thought, that is life. That's life. Dreaming about 12 dogs you want, screaming at the one dog you have, right? That's just the honest picture of how most of us function in our relationships, right? There's this distance between love that we dream about and love and reality. So for my seven-year-old, it's, it's the love she dreams about offering these 12 dogs who will obey. Then there's the reality of the one dog she actually has who doesn't listen, who sometimes is hard to love, and she yells at in an unloving way because sometimes he, he is the worst, right? There's this love that she dreams about offering, and then there is this love that she is, at least in that moment, withholding in reality because in reality, love is hard. And we, friend, we do this, especially as Christians who know that the mark of following Jesus is that you love God and love people. That's not a shock to anyone. And so we know we're supposed to love. And so usually how that actually materializes in our life is there is a love that we dream about offering 
There is a love that we intend to offer, and then there is a love that we withhold. And so we hold ourselves to the standard of our intentions of loves or our, our aspirations of good love. And then we think, okay, I'll love my family. I'll love the people who I'm supposed to love and never pay attention to the love that we actually withhold in reality. And Jesus knows this. And so every single time he teaches on love, do you know what he wants to talk about? Not love in dreams. He never wants to talk about the love that he knows we all maybe aspire to offer. He wants to talk about the love we withhold every time. He wants to talk about the, the, the places in our life where it's actually really difficult to offer love. And so we withhold love. And he wants to talk about those harsh places of life because it's where love is hardest, where it's most needed. And it's where love is most difficult that there's an opportunity to show the love of God in a way that's most distinct. And that's when love is really love. So he goes after this gap that exists in all of our life between the love that we know we're supposed to offer and then the love and reality that we withhold. And there's two places he goes in this section. The love that we withhold from those who have wronged us and the love we withhold from those who are not like us. Have the conversation over and over again. The love that he wants to talk about, the love. He brought, friend, he brought you here today. Whatever your background Whatever your story, however familiar you are with this place or me or the Bible, he brought you here today to turn your attention to the love that you withhold from those who have wronged you and the love that you withhold from those who are not like you. Starts in verse 38 with the love that we withhold from those who've wronged us. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Okay, when Jesus spoke these words to his original audience, the people of God were under an uh, oppressive Roman occupation. They were not in charge of their lives. They were not in charge of their land. Rome was in charge. A lot of the examples that Jesus cites here are examples of real things that would happen to the Jewish people because Rome was in charge. For instance, the example that he gives, if someone forces you to go to walk a mile, go another mile, that was something that Roman soldiers would do to Jewish people. If a Roman soldier had to take a trip, they didn't want to carry their bags. A Roman soldier had to take a trip and they didn't want to use their own animal or they didn't have an animal. What they would do is they would force a Jewish person to take that trip with them so that the Jewish person could basically carry their luggage. It was like you know, a modern day Uber, but they didn't pay. And if you said no, you'd go to jail and they could force you to do that. And that's what Jesus is talking about. Uh, he says, if someone slaps you on a cheek, that wasn't a, a, a violent act. That's the mod. It was an insulting act. Uh, slapping on the cheek in the first century is the modern day spitting in someone's face. And so anyone could do that to anyone else, but likely it was someone who was in power who did that to somebody who they knew that they could get away with insulting them like that. They had clout, they had power. If anyone sues you, when someone sued you, you had to give your outer garment, garment as collateral. So Jesus is talking about that. Give to those who beg. Don't refuse if someone asks for a loan. So where is he at this point? The, when he goes to those illustrations to make his point, he is calling to mind very real injustice that the people of God face day in and day out. When he says the one who walks a mile, when he says the one who slaps you on the cheek, what he's doing is he is turning their attention to the parts of life that are most painfully unfair, turning their attention to the relationships, to the people that have treated them in the ways that are most wrong and where they have very little ability to, to, to take control of their own justice into their hands. And so listen, 
there is, I want to be really honest about this. There's an incredible tension in applying a verse like this. Like as you consider, what does this mean for my situation? It gets really complicated. There's a lot of, there's just a lot of I don't knows. There's, there's a lot of, you know, there's a need for wisdom because especially the places in our lives where we've been wronged by people, sinned against by people, there's just a need for things to be slow because it's so complex, right? And I don't want to, what I don't want to do is I don't want to relieve that tension. I think that that tension exists because life and situations like these are so complicated and complex. But listen, like what it can't mean, let me try to spell out that tension. What it can't mean is it can't mean Christians enable evil. Can't mean that. It also can't mean that Christians never pursue justice or holding people accountable for wrong. It can't mean that. Uh, One of the times that the Apostle Paul is imprisoned, he's imprisoned without a trial. And as a Roman citizen, that was illegal. And so what Paul did is he didn't what Paul did is he appealed to the legal system to right that wrong. And in doing that, he's trying to hold them accountable for doing something that was wrong against him. And in that, he's not disobeying Jesus. I'll give you another example. We at Citizens Church partner with an organization called IJM. They are freeing slaves all over the world, helping people who are oppressed and vulnerable all over the world. We partner specifically with them in Guatemala, where in Guatemala there is a... Uh, there is an incredibly tragic number of sexual assault cases. It's just rampant there. And most of that is against children. And what we don't do is we don't look at that and say, turn the other cheek. We look at that and we say Psalm 68, 5. Father to the fatherless, protector of widow and orphans is God in his holy habitation. And if God defends orphans, if God protects widows, and if he loves and defends the vulnerable, then so should his people. So there's a way to read all of this and then turn to your life, or there's a way to read all this and then turn to application. And because of the extreme language that Jesus uses, and it is extreme, there's a way to overreact where we become passive to evil and where we abandon the pursuit of justice in a way that Jesus did not intend. So that's that's kind of one end of the spectrum. But there's also a way to explain away these verses so that we never live courageously in the face of evil. Uh, There's a way to explain away these verses where we never offer love like Jesus commands, even if it makes us more vulnerable. Like there are times, friend, there are times when Christians are asked to absorb and endure being wrong because of love. Every single martyr has that story. When Peter is crucified upside down, it's because he refused to fight. He refused to defend himself. It was love driving him to endure wrong. When Jim Elliott, who is a missionary to Ecuador, when he stands on the banks of a river in Ecuador and is speared to death by the tribe that he came to share the gospel with, it's love that kept him from fighting back. It's love that kept his gun in his truck so that he endured wrong. And he's the one who said he is no fool to give what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. So it was this courageous harm-enduring love that had him stand where he stood. And so just feel the tension with me. The, the whole scope of the Bible's teaching on the Christian response to evil and oppression, it just doesn't fall on clear lines, and it doesn't fall in clean categories. Let me say it like this. There are times to look at evil and stand up for the vulnerable, and that's always right. And then there are times that you look at evil and you lay down on a cross. 
And that's the tension from passages like these. So I say all that to say there are no easy answers to the question of what does this mean for my wrong? What does it mean for injustices committed against me? Uh, Sometimes what is most loving is boundaries. It's always most loving to be truthful with someone about the wrongs they committed against you, but the need is for wisdom and application. Let me tell you something that we can be sure about that's not complex at all. Where, where, where there is just what erupts off the page that is true for every single person, regardless of your story, is Jesus is talking about the love we withhold. And the main point is he wants to talk about how love replaces vengeance in the life of a Christian. What he's going to go after through these passages is he's going to say love and vengeance cannot exist in the same heart. And so he'll invite us to surrender our justice to God's justice so that love can replace vengeance in our life. That's the movement. He starts this way. You've heard that it was said an eye for an eye. Follow me. This is a legal principle in the Old Testament called equal retribution. It's a hard word to say when you're tired. Whatever harm is done to you, equal harm is to be done in return. That's, that's the law. That's from the Old Testament, several places. So the example here is if you get in a fight and someone takes your eye, which I don't know what kind of fights they were getting in back then, but that's really intense. So you get in a fight, you lose your eye, uh, you get to take their eye. That's the law, equal retribution. Jesus is not contradicting that. He's not throwing the Old Testament you know, out the back door. What he's doing is he's doing what he's done this whole sermon with passages from the Old Testament. He's drawing God's intention out of the law to bring it to this truest picture of God's heart. And so what it had become, what eye for an eye in Latin, the lex talionis, what it had become is that it had become, if you do this, I get to do this. If you do this thing against me, it is my right to exact this kind of punishment on you. And how it was intended, It wasn't intended to become a right. How it was intended was to prevent overreaction to wrong. It was to prevent someone losing an eye in a fight and in response saying, now I get to take your head. Or someone losing, you know, a livestock or something is an example. And and in response, someone burns down, you know, their whole farm. Because the human heart tends when wronged to not want the punishment to fit the crime. The human heart wants to overpunish when we're wronged. We want the punishment to not just cover what we lost, but we want the punishment to cover us from all of the hurt that we lost in a way that makes us feel vindicated. And that means wanting heads when all we lost was an eye. And the law existed to prevent that. No, no, no. It's, it's eyes for eyes. And then Jesus comes on the scene. What does he say? If the law that represents God's heart was intended to prevent from uh, overpunishment, if it was intended to prevent this kind of vigilante, take my justice into my own hands kind of response, what is better than the law intended to prevent that kind of vengeance? You know what's better than that? Hearts that are free from that kind of vengeance. What's better than that is hearts where where vengeance would exist because of love for God, that vengeance has been replaced with love. And, and, And when our heart is free of vengeance and full of love, Law isn't needed. So the examples that he uses are the outworking of people who are not holding on to eye for an eye like a right, but whose hearts are full of love and free of vengeance. And so what they can say is, I can offer love in the harsh realities of life. I can handle another mile. I can handle a second insult. I can give up my clothes. I don't have to punish you. That's his point. Okay. If you're like me, you're asking a really important question. But what about the wrong? What about justice? Like, what about the very real sins committed against me? What about the first mile that I I wasn't supposed to walk? What about the slap on the cheek? Listen to how Paul teaches the same truth in Romans 12. He says, Do not repay anyone evil for evil. 
Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. And then he just quotes Jesus. Do not take revenge, my dear friends. But, okay, so do not, don't eye for an eye this thing. Don't take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. It is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. How can we love when we've been wronged? Because God is just. How can we overlook the insult? Because vengeance belongs to God. So hear me. It is not, it doesn't matter how you were wronged. It is not the insult, the extra mile. It's not a big deal. It is God cares. In fact, it's beyond that. God keeps track. God is the one who is counting. And if God keeps count, you don't have to. That's the point. If, if God keeps track, you don't, God will repay so you don't have to. And when God repays, he administers justice with perfection. Do you feel a little uncomfortable in that? Meaning, this is an area, an attribute, an aspect of God that we need, but it makes us uncomfortable. We love a God of love. We squirm at the idea of a God of wrath. It sounds like the Turner Burn hellfire and brimstone preacher that never, made us never want to go back to church or maybe made us never want to step into a church. And, and I get it, just to be clear, there are people who have the same job that I have who try to control people by making God angry and cold. And I hate that because he's not. He's love. Hear me though. A God of love cannot truly be a God of love in a broken world without also being a God of justice and wrath. He is love, and out of his love, wrath comes out. Out of his love, justice comes out. If you were just to think about this, there is anger in your life that exists in your life only because there are things that you love. There's anger in your life that is provoked when something that you love is threatened or something that you love is harmed, and not every instance of that is unrighteous. Some of that is right. Some of that, when, when that anger comes out of your life, some of it is not a, a, a proof of sin. Some of it is proof of love, that love is prevailing. My son, when he was three years old, we were playing at a playground, and there was this older kid there. I, I don't know how old. He was probably 14 or 15. He, he acted really young, but he had a full beard, which was frustrating because I, I can't. You know, I just I try, but I can't. Some guys get an afternoon shadow. I have a 34-year-old shadow right here, and that's all I can do. But anyway, so he was uh, with his friends, this kid on the park, and at one point, my son, who's three, is running around um, by where he was sitting, and this man-child uh, stuck his leg out and tripped my three-year-old and then turned to his friends and left. And it's on the concrete, and so my three-year-old fell, face, hands, blood, scraped, crying. You know what I didn't do? Didn't feel a lot of warm feelings. Didn't smile. I didn't shrug. I was angry. I was angry. And, and I had to remind myself real quick of some things. Like, Jamin, you're a pastor. Don't be foolish. Don't lose your job. You have no marketable skills. Like, this is, this is it for you, you know? But I was angry. And I, I picked up my son, didn't say anything, picked up my son, walked away. And then there were a lot of ways that that could have turned unrighteous for sure. There was a way for me to sin in that anger. But hear me, the presence of that anger was not a failure of love. The presence of that anger was an outworking of love for my son in response to him having been wronged, in response to him having been sinned against. You know what would have been a failure of love in a moment like that? Apathy. Apathy, not caring at all is a failure. But anger in a moment like that is love's 
greatest evidence, and, and you've felt that. You've felt that kind of righteous anger when you see something that you really care about threatened or harmed or wronged or sinned against. And if imperfect people, if an imperfect dad feels that from love for his child, right, how much more must those attributes be present in a God who is love, who is perfect love? If God is love and he has set his love on a broken world, it has to be true that when that brokenness comes out as harm and wrong and evil and pain towards that which he loves, that love from God does not fail as apathy. It's proven as anger. It's proven as wrath. It's proven as justice and judgment. Not only that, but God loves God. God is three persons in an interconnected relationship of Trinitarian love. And, and the one most sinned against always is God. The one whose character is most affronted, the one whose holiness is most defended is God's. And so when that happens, it comes out as anger and judgment and laugh. And, and hear me, friends, when we lose that, when we lose that understanding, and, and obviously there is need for understanding, but when we, when we lose that truth about God, it makes passages like turn the other cheek, walk the extra mile, and if you interpret that through the lens of some of the awful things that sinful people do to other people, if you interpret that through the lens of just atrocities committed in this world, without a God who keeps count, these passages are cruel. No, wrongs matter. Sins against you and me matter. And if there is no justice from God, then I either have to take vengeance into my own hands or I live under the weight of my wounds like a doormat. Friend, every single sin is met with God's justice. Every single one. It's either the justice of the cross of Christ, where God's wrath, God's justice is poured out, where the Father pours out his wrath on the Son so that justice and mercy can meet and everyone can be forgiven, including those who spew insults, including those who force people to walk miles, and there is a justice for sin that happens there so that the sinful person can come to the foot of the cross, receive forgiveness and grace, and the judgment on their life is lifted, it's placed on Jesus so we can walk in freedom forever. Or if it doesn't happen at the cross of Christ, it happens at the return of Christ. He came first as a savior. He comes again as a warrior and he makes his path straight and he restores all and, if he, and he punishes evil. What that means for me and you, if God keeps count, I don't have to. If God keeps record of wrong, then I don't have to hold on to them. And it doesn't mean there isn't healing needed. It doesn't mean that there aren't real-time consequences. Again, there's so much tension in this, right? But what I can do is I can put my confidence in Christ that God makes all things right, and that will slowly but surely, if I am trusting God's judgment, it will lift vengeance from my heart, and it will replace it with love. And that's work. It's a process. What many of us discover is we discover that we actually would be the one that wants to control the punishment, and so we have to over and again surrender that to God and remind ourselves that we're not God. We won't do this as good as God will. Or we discover that we have a hard time seeing God extend mercy to others like he has extended to us. The great hope of someone who has received love and grace from God, the great hope would be that you would hope that those who have sinned against you would find the same mercy that you found at the foot of the cross. 
The great hope is that those who have wronged you would come and they would find grace and that they would not have to meet the wrath of God, but they would meet and be overwhelmed by the mercy of God. And often it's in our wounds. It's when people have sinned against us. What is really exposed is we want Savior Jesus for us. We want those who have wronged us to get warrior Jesus. And what God will do is he will root out that bitterness in our lives so that grace can go deeper into our lives so that we can get to a point where we are as eager to see others receive grace as we are to get it. And that's love in reality, not in dreams. That is love in a hard place to love. That is love in a harsh place to love. But I want you to know this, friends. The people in my life who have been the clearest models of Christ-like love are the ones who have been sinned against most, the ones who have endured wrong, who then trust their wrongs to God's justice and are able to love because vengeance in their heart has surrendered to the love of God. Love those who have wronged you and then love those who are not like you. Verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. Hear, hear this verse, So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Remember that. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? The tax collectors do the same. If you only greet your brothers, what more are you doing than others? The Gentiles do the same. You, therefore, here's our, our, our book in verse. You, therefore, must be whole and complete and perfect as your heavenly Father is. We will be brief here for time's sake, but I hope this sounds really familiar. We talk about this often. Jesus starts with love your neighbor, hate your enemy. He states the social code of the day for many in his audience. For many of them, enemy, uh, you know, who I love is my neighbor. It's like the lawyer who comes up in Luke 10, who is my neighbor. And then enemy always fell, always. Enemy fell along lines of ethnic, political, and religious differences. So an enemy was someone who did not think, who did not look, who did not believe or did not live like me. So the knee-jerk was where I see a difference, I fill that difference with a right to ignore or a right to distance or a right to despise or a right to hate. Does that sound familiar at all to anyone in 2021? And what Jesus says is, love your enemies. He wants to, he wants to talk about the love they withhold. He doesn't want to talk about how good they're doing loving their neighbor. He wants to say, okay, great, you love your neighbor, love your enemies. I want to spend time focusing on the love you withhold, and it's a shift. And his argument is so that you might be sons of your father. This isn't works-based salvation. It's not love your enemies so that God will love you. That's not the gospel. Uh, the idea is that when you see a child and in their appearance you see their parent, you know whose child they are. That's the argument. That's the idea. Like we have a, a ton of young families here at Citizens Church, and sometimes I'll see a kid running the halls of our church, and I will see that kid, and I will know who their parents are because of how they're behaving. Just kidding. I will, know, <laughs> I will know who their parents are because they look just like their mom or they look just like their dad. That's what Jesus is saying here. If you only love those who are like you, if you only love those who agree with you, then you love no different than anyone else. But if you want to love like God, then you love those who are not like you. And if you do that, if you have a love that's distinct like that, if you have a love that crosses boundaries and, and, and is able to, to overcome all the different labels, then you will look like God. And, and everyone will know whose child you are because you'll look like your Father in heaven. How does God love? He sends rain on the just and the unjust. Uh, he makes the sun rise on the good and the evil. Do you hear what Jesus is drawing out about God's heart 
He, is, he meets needs indiscriminately. He does not withhold his general love and kindness from anyone. He's not first looking and saying, are you evil? Okay, no rain. Are you just? Okay, here's some sun. No, everyone gets a level of goodness from God, the goodness and common grace of life in God's world. Everyone gets that. Everyone knows that. We all experience that. And Jesus grabs that and says, this is God's love. And then he gives it to us and says, love the way that God loves. And then he doubles down. If all you do is love those who are like you, if all you do is love those who love you, this is strong language. If that's how you love, then there is no distinct witness of God in your life. Christian, you and I live at a time when the easiest way to tell what someone believes is to ask, who do they despise? And if they start talking about someone on the left, then you know that they're right. If they start talking about someone on the right, then you know that they're left. Or just pick a controversy. The easiest way to tell what someone believes is by asking them or listening to who they despise. And, and, and the church has not been clean in that. I don't necessarily mean our church, just the church at large. I think what's happened for many Christians, many Christians have maybe felt in the last decade or so, especially in the last few years, Many Christians have felt some of the loss of cultural power that maybe we once had, or we felt the loss of political representation that maybe we once had, or we've just felt the societal shifts that push Christians further and further to the margins. And we all respond to that. Can I tell you something? The cheapest way to try to feel safe in that is to pick someone to hate. The most ungodly way to try to move forward in that is to pick someone to hate. Or if you just think about all the things right now that are filled with controversy and there's been that unsettling experience, you know this experience, where you see people that you know land on sides that you just never thought they would land. And in that, there's a bit of loss of control and in that, there's a bit of feeling destabilized. And the cheapest way to try to feel safe is to pick a side to hate. The, the cheapest way to try to feel safe, the most ungodly way to try to navigate that kind of a controversial world is to say, I'm going I'm to go over here into my tribe and I'm just going to be a part of the people who are known by everything that they oppose, not really known by what they're for, but just know by who they oppose and who they hate and who they despise and who they rant about. And listen, if that happens in the church, if that's the people, if that's what we're known for, if that's what's known about us as Christians, then what you have is you have a lot of Christians running the halls of God's world and no one can tell whose child they are. No one can tell who they belong to because they don't look like God. May it not, may it not be said of us, Citizens Church. May we be known not by our hate, not by what we despise, not even first and foremost by what we're against, May we be known by who we belong to, and that's going to come out in our life as a love that's distinct, a love that loves those especially that are not like us. Let me tie all this together with a question. If what Jesus brought you in here to do is to talk about the love that you withhold, if that's what he's been talking to me about all week as I've been studying this, if that's what he has collectively for us as a church, and maybe, maybe you were to take this sermon and you were to just put it into a one-on-one -on -one conversation with Jesus, knowing that he wants to talk to you about love and reality, not, not love and dreams. Where do you think he would start? Would he start with maybe the unwritten list of enemies that exists in your head, in your heart? Maybe he would start, you think, with whoever comes to mind when you think about who's sinned against you or wrongs committed against you. Maybe he would start with the side that you most despise and all that's happened and unfolded, and, and maybe, but I don't think so. Can I offer something? I believe Jesus, who is gentle and lowly, I believe he would start by reminding you first that he has not withheld love from you. 
Not only has he not withheld love from you, but Paul says in Ephesians, he has lavished his love on you and on me. Jesus loves you. Look, you cannot, we cannot, what Jesus knows is we cannot offer what we haven't received. And so love with God doesn't start by the love that we go and offer. It starts by the love that we sit and take in from him who loves us and is for us. And then here's the good news of the gospel. Jesus loves you. And guess what he loves? He loves the reality of you. Not the dream of you. He loves you as you are. He doesn't love the dream of you cleaned up in the mind of God. That's not how he works. He loves the reality of you. And you know what's true about you and me? We've wronged him and we're not like him. And he loves us still. Almost every illustration he gave in these verses plays out in his crucifixion. If anyone slaps you, turn the other cheek. John 18, when Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. If anyone would take your tunic, give them your coat. Matthew 27, they stripped him. And put a scarlet robe on him. If anyone forces you to walk a mile, go another. Matthew 27, after they mocked him, they took off the robe. Then they led him away to crucify him. Not only did they make him walk a mile, but they made him do it with a cross on his back. And why does he endure? Why does he stay? Peter, his friend, tells us. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to God who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, we have been healed. He loves you. The reality of you the you that has wronged him, the you that's different from him. Paul's going to go on to say God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still sinners, while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him. So he has modeled to you a kind of love for those who has wronged him, kind of love for those who are not like him. Where you are right now has lavished you with his love. He's not withholding it from you. And then he says this, you go and do likewise. Father, we love you. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your grace. Could we, God, could you just, by your spirit, in your kindness, would you do something? Would you remind these, my brothers and sisters, of the love that they have from you in abundance that you're not withholding, you're pouring out? Would you pray, friend, for the faith to believe that? Would you pray that that idea that God doesn't love the dream of you, he loves the reality of you, would you pray that the Spirit of God would now use that to begin to chip away at the shame that makes you feel like God is cold to you? Would you just ask him, help me believe that you love me like that, God, in Jesus? And then maybe would you just pray a dangerous prayer? Would you pray that God would reveal to you maybe someone that right now you are withholding love from? Maybe you already know. Maybe it's the face you can't stop seeing, the name you can't stop hearing in your head. Just pray, God, who? And then ask that he would give you the wisdom, because it takes wisdom. No one story is the same, but just ask that he would give the courage that he would fill your heart with the kind of uh, grace that leads to obedience that you might initiate, that you might take a step towards not withholding love, but offering it, especially where it's difficult.
Father, we love you because you first loved us. God, we love others because you first loved us. I pray that that would continue to mean something very distinct and beautiful here at Citizens Church. I pray that enjoying you and loving people as citizens of heaven, that that would not be a love that is limited by our own narrow boundaries, but that that would be a love that especially grows and is bright in dark places and difficult circumstances. We love you. Amen.